Can the climate movement overcome America's systemic racism? Climate One conversations feature energy companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Many white people have recently become aware of how racism is embedded in every aspect of American society. Racism that has been glaringly obvious to people of color their whole lives. And environmental efforts are no exception. Air pollution, severe weather, and the economic upheaval brought on by climate change impacts black and minority communities first and worst. Refineries, power plants, and dumps are often located in lower-income neighborhoods of color. Those same neighborhoods also often lack green space and stores with healthy food. Yet theirs are the voices often left out of policy responses and market solutions. We want economically thriving, educated, and healthy, safe communities. And part of the reason why we haven't been able to achieve that is because of the ability not to have brave conversations about the inequalities in this country. Linda Carr is president and CEO of Higher Heights for America, an organization she founded to grow black women's political power. For those who have long been working on climate justice, it's been an uphill battle to get people to understand the needs of communities of color. Anytime policy is being created, it should be coming from local people, local communities, local organizations. And the most important thing was that, you know, communities speak for themselves. So if we can get politicians to understand that basic concept, we would stop wasting money and we would stop making mistakes by creating policy that is not meeting the needs of everyday people. That's Mustafa Santiago Ali, Vice President of Environmental Justice at the National Wildlife Federation. We're also joined by Dr. Robert Bullard, Distinguished Professor of Urban Planning and Environmental Policy at Texas Southern University in Houston. Dr. Bullard is widely recognized as the father of environmental justice and is a recipient of many awards, including this year's Stephen Schneider Award for Outstanding Climate Science Communication, presented by Climate One. We begin by connecting with our breath. People breathe about 25,000 times a day, and we usually take it for granted. COVID-19, which attacks the lungs, and the suffocation of Eric Garner and George Floyd at the hands of police, have focused on breath and given it new meaning. Mustafa Santiago Ali explains why. You know, breath is life. You know, from the, the moment that we come from our mothers, the first thing we do is take that breath, which brings life into our bodies in this world. And unfortunately, we know that so many of our communities, uh, you know, black communities, brown communities, indigenous communities, uh, sometimes even lower wealth white communities uh, don't have that opportunity. And they don't have that opportunity because there's intentionality uh, by folks both in the past and in the present and limiting folks' ability to be able to take that breath. And that's why in this moment, we also talk about that racism, systemic racism, uh, plays into that paradigm and to that set of actions. Um, and hopefully today we will unpack what that looks like um, and, and how we can rectify the situation that has been perpetuated by both uh, politics, policy, and in everyday folks' lives. Glenda Carr, when you take a long, deep breath, you know, how does that affect you, given what's ever, everything that's been happening in our country lately about breathing. Yeah. So recently, a colleague of mine shared a song that her mother-in-law wrote. Um, and it was a song 
um, in tribute to George Floyd. And in that, she says, I can't breathe. Let me breathe. Hear me. And I think those three short phrases shares a little bit about how African-Americans are feeling in this moment, um, how black and brown communities are feeling in this moment, and frankly, how the world is feeling. You know, the notion of being able to be free to take a full breath and use this moment for those who can to fill up and fill our our democracy in a way that can envision a pathway forward. Uh, it is a luxury, unfortunately, in our society to breathe. The attack on um, Black and Brown lives um, and our ability not, to not only breathe because we've been constrained by institutional racisms for centuries, our ability to breathe um, when we continue to see police brutality choking Black lives, our ability to breathe so we can imagine a world rid of pollution, rid of rid of racism, rid of a politically toxic, racially divisive time that we're living in. But in that moment when we breathe, there's clarity about a pathway forward. Dr. Bullard, your thoughts? You've been writing books with uh, very uh, prescient titles, Dumping in Dixie, The Wrong uh, Complexion for Protection. When you think about breathing and the work you've done, what really fills your mind and your heart? Well, you know, the first thing I think of is that uh, breathing is uh, natural. And what's unnatural is when breathing can be hazardous to your health. And for too long, our lives have been snuffed out and somehow uh, demeaned because we have not been allowed to breathe freely. And I think the, the, this whole idea of the right to breathe clean air is a basic human right. And when you start taking away that right to breathe, you're taking away humanity. And when you're taking away just every day, uh, 24-7, the violence of dumping pollution into neighborhoods through smokestacks, and families are waking up 2.30 in the morning because some accident, because of some plume that is rushing through their neighborhoods. They don't know if, and they're told to shelter in place, and they don't know if they're going to live or die. That's violence. It's the same kind of violence that we see the police violence that's, that's snuffing out uh, black lives and, and killing people and, and creating this mental stress and trauma. When we see those videos daily and running, looping, 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 that is causing trauma, you know, which is PTSD. That kind of violence is taking its toll. And I think uh, everybody knows it now. These demonstrations are, are really showing that not just in this country, around the world, that this is unjust, this is barbaric, and we need to stop it right now. Mustafa Sandir Ali, I was recently listening to an interview with uh, Brian Stevenson, and he was talking about how going to other countries, particularly, I guess, Germany, how they is actively encourage people to learn about the Holocaust. There's this national reckoning across generations. And it seems like this country hasn't had that reckoning yet. I'd like to hear your thoughts on whether America's really put this legacy of racism front and center like it should have. Well, I think America's afraid to, because if you put it front and center, 
if you integrate it into the educational system um, as a part of our history, both the dark days um, and, and where we are in, in this present moment, then you have to do something about it. And it's very difficult for America to admit that it was a part of genocide for our indigenous brothers and sisters. It's hard for America to also talk about snatching the lives of Africans and bringing them to this country so that you could have free labor. It's difficult for our country to also focus on the fact that they brought uh, Chinese uh, brothers and sisters over here to build the infrastructure on the railroads and then turn their back on them after that and ostracize them. So for America to truly be able to highlight the injustices, the systemic racism that we're talking about today would then mean that you also have to figure out a way that you are going to address both those past and present uh, injustices that continue to happen. And that may come in the form of reparations. That may definitely come in the form of making sure that there is legislation, both on the federal and the state level, that rectifies those situations. And that also means that there has to be resources placed into that overall equation because words without resources have little meaning. Um, so I think it's difficult for our country up to this moment to be able to actually honor uh, the lives that have been sacrificed so that this country could be in the positioning that it is. But I will also say that this is a new moment, this is a new time, and young people and many others are refusing to have the 21st century look like the previous centuries. So we have to see what that's going to actually look like. And of course, mobilization, uh, building coalitions, and, and many of the other uh, aspects that are necessary for true change to happen will have to all come together. Glenda Carr, the, the climate and, and environmental conversation is often separate from conversations about housing, jobs, equity, those sorts of things. How do you see them as connected? I mean, racism is everywhere and carbon pollution is everywhere. They're both systemic problems, but they're often thought of as separate. At the end of the day, you know, we will continue to have siloed conversations. I do think for us to step into the mo this moment, where we can truly reimagining an America we can all believe in, we have to look at the intersectionality of this moment. Um, and at the end of the day, Black women want what white women want, who want what Black men want, who want what white men and our other um, communities of color want. We want economically thriving, educated, and healthy, safe communities. Um, and if we could meet, you know, in the intersection to be able to talk about the nuances of that and, and, and why we haven't been able to, to achieve that. And part of the reason why we haven't been able to achieve that is because of the ability not to have brave conversations about the inequalities in this country. And so what has happened, you know, with the, I think the intersection, when you talk about meeting at the intersection in 2020, we are moving towards a presidential election in November during one of the most politically toxic and racially divisive times. We are in 2020 with the backdrop of COVID-19 and like literally breaking open the racial disparities on mainstream TV and our, our social platforms about how COVID-19 is impacting communities of color. Then insert, you know, a continued drumbeat on the attack of Blackness and then insert an, yet another conversation about the Amy Coopers of the world racializing the ability for a black man to walk in Central Park as a bird watcher, 
all of those pieces have now hit an intersection that we can truly have conversations about how do we talk about the intersectionality of you know, raising the next generation of whole Americans. And that has to be a connection about my ability to economically thrive, my ability to ensure that my children are educated, to, um, um, to imagine a world where we are all safe um, and that it's not just the color of our skin that dictates our ability to walk down the street and not be afraid of not being able to come home. Mustafa Santiago Ali, you used to work for the Hip Hop Caucus. There's a lot of uh, talk about how Joe Biden needs black voters to, to win in 2020. What do you see there and that connection? And does it connect to the issues we're talking about, environment and climate, or have they been, they've been pushed aside? No, I don't think they've been pushed aside at all. So first, let's say for anyone who is garnering to have the vote, uh, especially of the African-American community, then you have to be authentic. Uh, in the work that you have done in the past, in the present, and actually framing out what your future is going to look like. So if you're not willing to do that, then you're going to have a very difficult time uh, in, you know, gathering those votes that are so critical. You know, the beauty of, of working at the Hip Hop Caucus, and shout out to Rev Yearwood for helping to, you know, actually found that entity, which is was transformational in its moment uh, when it was founded, and of course today is needed more than ever is that you have to reach young people. And one of the ways in being able to accomplish that, of course, is through the arts um, and making sure that activists and artivists um, who are actually engaging, um, learning about the issues and then sharing that with the masses is a critical component that so many organizations do not get right. Uh, and then they wonder why young people, they wonder why people of color are not connected to their work. Well, one, if you don't look like the people who are working in your institution, <laughs> then you got some work to do. But besides that, you actually have to meet people where they are. Rev and I used to say that our work was from the streets to the suites. Um, so we made sure that we were connecting, you know, with all the various folks that are out there. And, you know, I've shared this before, you know, many of us who are here on this call tonight, you know, we know hundreds, sometimes thousands of incredible scientists who are out there who are doing, you know, important work. And if they say something, you might get 10% of the people to pay attention to what they're saying. But if Beyonce says something, if Jay-Z says something, if Chance the Rapper says something, you know, and a number of other folks are sharing information, it's going to connect because it's coming from an authentic space um, and they can relate to it. So that's why, you know, organizations like the Hip Hop Caucus and even in a broader construct, you know, us utilizing and honoring uh, the artists, you know, who are speaking from their hearts, they're speaking from their souls. That's what connects with people. That's what motivates people. And I think that's something also that you see many politicians uh, clamoring to have. Um, but, you know, you got to come from the places. You got to spend time in the places if you want your message to actually resonate in a real and authentic way. Uh, Dr. Bullard, is Joe Biden connecting in a passionate and authentic way? Some people think he doesn't, he's lost a step, doesn't quite have the energy that he, he used to have. And is he connecting with uh, African-American voters? Well, let me just put it this way. Uh, black people in this country have, have never uh, put all of our hope in presidents saving us uh, and have never put all of our hope in white people saving us. And I think it's important that we understand that any politician that's 
coming for our votes not only need to be authentic, they need to have a track record and they need to bring people who are from those areas that they want the votes from and not uh, white people telling us how it feels to be black. The experts that are out there can all, you know, all tell, you know, a white male can tell on a TV program what, it, what a black woman feels. That kind of paternalism and, and racism and classism uh, needs to stop. So let me just answer your question. I think the fact is that black people are responsible for dragging in South Carolina, dragging Joe Biden across the finish line. Black people are responsible for moving the Democratic Party as far along that it is right now. So let's be clear. When we talk about developing uh, a program of Lift Every Voice, a Black Agenda for America, then that it needs to be more than a 20-page or 30-page term paper. And so we need real, authentic proposals and organizations that have come to the table. That's why a group of us who have been working on environmental justice and environmental racism, transportation, housing, energy, food security, health, et cetera, came together and we have reformed the National Black Environmental Justice Network that we are pushing forward an agenda. We have developed policy papers, strategies, and the idea is that if we have a black agenda for America that's coming out of the Biden team, then that agenda needs to be developed by and for and presented to that team. And that the way that we move the agenda forward is inclusion, not sloganeering, but real programs. And I think we have enough young people old people and people who are concerned about this crisis that we're in right now, 80% of America thinks that we are out of control. Every social movement that has been successful in this country has had students and young people. I spent my life training, educating young people and students. And so the this whole idea of getting the word into those elected officials, and it starts at the city council, county commissioner, the legislature, the governor. Everything should not be put just 100% of our energy just on the president's election. We have to go down ballot and organize and mobilize and educate. There's no substitution for organizing. We used to be the best organizers in the world, and people learned from us, took our playbook, and now they're mimicking what we used to do. We have to get back to what we used to do is out-organize uh, everybody. Now that's my spiel for today. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about racism and climate change. Coming up, addressing the need for more diverse leadership in environmental efforts. When we look at all the major green groups, we don't see an African-American or a Latinx person leading any of those, but the Heritage Foundation, they actually have an African-American woman who runs that. If they can do it, how is it that these organizations that focus on environmental, conservation, climate can't do it? That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about creating a more inclusive climate movement in a racially polarized America. 
My guests are Dr. Robert Bullard, professor at Texas Southern University, Glinda Carr of Higher Heights for America, and Mustafa Santiago Ali of the National Wildlife Federation. Before joining the NWF, Mustafa worked at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency for 24 years, but he's been outspoken about the fact that when it comes to meeting the needs of communities of color, the EPA has fallen short. Yeah, you know, I've often said that anytime policy is being created, it should be coming from uh, local people, local communities, local organizations, and should be evaluated by those same organizations to make sure that it's meeting the needs. And we should not necessarily be having people have to come to Washington. You should be in their communities, in their meetings, listening. That's the first thing. Uh, and then sitting down with folks and, and following through with the translation of what they are asking for. And that is true whether we're in Appalachia, we're in the Rust Belt, we're on the Gulf Coast, no matter where we are, we have to make sure that that's actually happening. And I think it doesn't matter what administration it is, you know, folks sometimes fall short. Now, of course, this administration, the, the words falling short does not even begin to equate, um, you know, the lack of understanding, vision, uh, and just the basicness that is needed just for survival. Um, but yes, you know, we have to make sure that we are honoring the voice of the communities. You know, Dr. Bullard um, and, and many others, when I was coming up, I always remember, you know, sitting outside, listening to the meetings they were having. And the most important thing was that, you know, communities speak for themselves. So if we can get politicians, whether on the federal level or the state level or the county or the local level to understand that basic concept, we would stop wasting money and we would stop making mistakes by creating policy that is not meeting the needs of everyday people. Carter Roberts is CEO of WWF, one of the largest conservation organizations in the world with annual revenues of $300 million. After the national response to George Floyd's murder by police, he held an all-staff meeting to discuss the response of the organization, which was founded by European monarchs. I asked him what he heard at that meeting. Our African-American leaders told stories they'd never told in public before like that, that gave voice to what it was like to have uh, a son or a husband or a nephew that you worried about every day. And they gave voice to the injustice that they face every day. And, um, and the re response of our entire staff was a tidal wave of conviction that we need to do more to address that systemic justice. I grew up in Atlanta in, um, in the city of Martin Luther King and Andrew Young and Ralph Abernathy. And I thought we had made more progress than we have. I've led an organization where we have devoted ourselves to working with indigenous people and communities in far-flung places like the Congo or Namibia or Indonesia or uh, Nepal and Bhutan, or here at home in Alaska with tribal corporations and in the Northern Great Plains with tribes and ranchers. But it was clear to me we have not done enough with that most unique of American narratives and experiences and tension and roots, which is the African-American experience. So we have the largest social media presence of any environmental group and the largest brand 
Yes, I think of the you know the 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 panda bear when you mentioned WWF for some reason I think of Prince Charles. Uh, Thanks a lot. Yeah, if we sound like an elite group of people saving fuzzy animals, but you know our our mission has evolved over time. Our mission now is to build a future in which people and nature both flourish. And the power in our organization is devolved to local offices and um, uh, that are led by local people uh, all over the world. Alex Ohanian, who's married to Serena Williams, uh, resigned from the board of Reddit, a company that he co-founded and encouraged the board uh, to place a, a Black person in his place. He also donated a million dollars to Colin Kaepernick's Know Your Rights Camp. Is it time for some white people on environmental boards to step off and say, replace me with a person of color? I think it's time for white people like myself to ensure that the voices of African-Americans, people of color, indigenous communities are heard. And if that means stepping down from the stage that you're on and, and insisting that someone else take your place. And I think it means um, boards to look in the mirror and, um, and, and see everything they need to do to make sure those voices are heard. I think this begins with listening. That was Carter Roberts, CEO of WWF. Uh, Dr. Bullard, I'd like to hear your response there to basically saying they overlooked people in their own backyard. Well, you know, we have been saying that for decades. And uh, in, in educating students, uh, I've taught at big white schools and I've taught at historically black universities. And I encourage uh, young people to do study abroad, which is very important. But I also encourage them to explore the, the possibilities of what's on across town. And I think to, for uh, too often, uh, we have overlooked those issues that are, that are close to home and somehow think that America has somehow uh, overcome many of the issues that are being dealt with abroad, such as poverty and hunger and, uh, and looking at, uh, the issues of political prisoners, et cetera. Uh, the, the fact that we have been also in our environmental justice movement has been have been talking about uh, people speaking for themselves and developing uh, resources that will have the capacity for people to speak for themselves. And we've really chastised uh, a lot of these uh, large green groups, or they used to be in the 90s, we call them the Big Ten, for sucking up all the green dollars and uh, from foundations, private foundations, and 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 supposedly doing the work for everybody, but we know the work that gets done in a lot of communities of color is done by communities of color, indigenous communities that get very little share of the of the dollars. You know, the studies done in 2002, people called the environmental justice group got 4.5 percent of the green dollars. Uh, in 2020, I think it's 15 percent. Uh, in 25 years, this country will be majority people of color. We shouldn't wait to 2045 for us to transition to do justice in terms of not just diversity in terms of these um, large organizations on the boards and the staffs. That's okay. But we also should talk about diversifying the dollars, where the dollars flow should be where the needs are, and building those capacities of people of color groups and indigenous groups and women of color groups, et cetera. That's how you make change. And that's what we have been saying for a long time. Green 2.0, looking at diversity and the 
and and the boardrooms and then the board, et cetera. That's good. Uh, but we also be looking at where the money, as, as uh, folks would say on the street, where the money at? Who's getting them dollars and how that flows? Makes a difference. Mustafa Sanchez-Ali, uh, a report by Bloomberg last year found that the fossil fuel industry is much more ethnically diverse than the clean energy sector. The solar industry, for example, has a quarter million workers and about 75% of them are white. The recent academic study found lower adoption of rooftop solar in communities of color even after adjusting for income and home ownership. What's going on there? Well, you know, there's a saying, if you're going to talk about it, be about it. And, you know, it's really interesting that, and I've said this before, and, I, and I've had some pushback from some folks, you know, it's not only workers uh, inside of this new green, clean economy, because that's one, you know, people love for us to be focused on that. And that is an important conversation. The other part of it is ownership, because ownership then means that you can prioritize, you can make the right decisions, um, and, and you can make sure that your services and your resources can then be anchored in certain communities and can revolve around inside of those communities. And that is a missing part of this conversation. It's almost like the conversation that we have, and, and Dr. Bullard touched on it a little bit there, when we look at all the major green groups, we don't see an African-American or a Latinx person leading any of those, but the Heritage Fund or the Heritage Foundation, they actually have an African-American woman who runs that. Now, I don't agree with the policies that they support and they move forward on, but if they can do it, how is it that these organizations that focus on environmental conservation, climate can't do it? Um, and then, of course, we flip the coin over and we look at the clean economy and we don't see folks doing the right things yet in that space. It's important. The work that can come out of there is important. Us you know, transitioning from fossil fuels is important, but it's also as important that we don't take this, you know, a paradigm from one impacting negative side and then transfer that to the green side. So we got to make sure that we don't, uh, you know, continue the sins of the past, if I can say it that way. Glenda Carr, on that point about the Heritage Foundation, uh, Condi Rice is the new head of the Hoover Institute at Stanford University, very bastion of conservative thinking, uh, you know, going back uh, for, for decades. How do you feel about that? Do you, is there an expectation that uh, women of color are always progressive? Are you happy to get conservative women of color in power too? You know, Black women aren't a monolithic voting block. We're not a monolithic leadership. And for me, a diverse decision-making table, regardless of where it fits in my, my, my political ideology, still makes better decisions. And so being able to ensure that if we're looking at this just from a, from a two political idealism spectrum, conservative to progressives, we need to be pushing both um, spectrums to ensure that their leadership looks diverse and looks like America. And then for, for me is that I have no problem being able to be in a brave conversation where we put, push our counterparts. Um, to be better on issues or center center our communities in those issues. So, no, I think that we should ensure that each decision-making table is is diverse so that um, th she still has uni a unique experience as a Black woman in America that she's bringing to a table that would, without her leadership, be void of a discussion about race and gender. And another person that you've helped uh 
campaign, Letitia James, the first black woman to be New York attorney general. She took on ExxonMobil and lost. Tell us about her and some of the other new crop of leaders you're, you're supporting. We saw a very different congressional glass in 2018. You know, um, behind my shoulder is Shirley Chisholm. Um, the first black woman to ever be elected to Congress in 1968. So we're 51 years since she, you know, became the first black woman to serve in that body. She went on four years later, um, literally 48 years from like today, she was preparing for the 1972 Democratic Convention, where she would go in her name be entered um, into nomination from the floor. So there's been gains around Black leadership since then and gains for Black women, but the 23 million Black women in this country are underrepresented and underserved. And the strides that we've seen since Shirley Chisholm is in um, through Higher Heights and our work with the Center for American Women in Politics, you can't actually build a blueprint for it if you don't know where you've been, Sankofa, right? And so when you look at Black women's leadership, in 2014, there was only one, two Black women elected and serving as mayors of top 100 cities. So enter 2020, and what we see on the national stage are seven Black women leading major cities and, and frankly, being more progressive on how they're approaching COVID-19 than their counterparts across the country. Um, in our country's history, we've um, only had 15 Black women serve as statewide executives, Letitia James being one, right? And here is a woman who is using her position as a New York State Attorney General to actually put, push innovation um, and progressive policies that will be implemented nationwide. And so she, again, entered COVID-19, recognizing the racial disparities, both from a health perspective, from an economic perspective, and um, I think has leading well. Um, and to circle right back to a Shirley Chisholm, in 2018, we elected the largest number of women ever to serve in Congress, including the largest number of Black women to ever serve in that body. Um, we now have 25 Black women serving in Congress, one African-American woman in um, the U.S. Senate, which is Kamala Harris. We've only elected two in our country's history in 1972, Kara um, Mosley-Braun and now um, Kamala Harris. And we have 24 Black women serving in the House of Representatives. But what's unique about the freshman class is they were um, their leadership was built for a time as this. So who did we know that in 2018 we would elect Lauren Underwood, a nurse, who is uniquely qualified to sit at a table as we determine how we are preparing in the intersection of a racial lens around health disparities. Who knew that in 2018, when we sent Johanna Hayes, not only a teacher, but the 2016 Teacher of the Year to serve in Congress, that she would be sitting at a table that as we envision how we homeschool um, children across the country, that we would ensure that there would be a, a clear discussion around the inequalities of broadband and technology for our children. So I think the Black women you know, that are serving in Congress are uniquely um, using their voices and their leadership in a way that centers the um, communities of color in the way that talks about the intersectionality of the very issues that we are at the you know, unfortunate bottom of every indicator. Um, at the end of the day, I will end up at this, is that the road to 2020 um, is built on the engagement of Black voters. And at the center of the over-engagement of um, Black voters are Black women. When we fire up a Black woman, she doesn't go to the polls alone. She brings her house, her block, her church, and her sorority. That is the tradition of what my mother did. And to the day she died, she called me and my brothers to ensure that we voted in elections, right? And we are um, more than ever leaning into, we want our return on our voting investment. 
And that is in the form of policies that directly impact Black women, our families, and our communities. And we are absolutely continuing to claim seats at decision-making tables so that we can create a country and move it to higher heights. Listening to a conversation about race, politics, and environment in America. This is Climate One. Coming up, getting outside of our comfort zones. Being uncomfortable is the way that we have real conversations. And I think that is what we ought to be doing in this moment, to listen, but also to be able to be receptive to conversations and the grace for people to evolve around a race conversation. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about racism in America. My guests are Mustafa Santiago Ali of the National Wildlife Federation. Dr. Robert Bullard, Distinguished Professor at Texas Southern University, and Glinda Carr, CEO and founder of Higher Heights for America. As enlightened as we might think we are as a country, we're still uncomfortable talking about race. Many of us don't even know what words we should or should not be using. Glinda Carr believes we should meet those uncomfortable conversations head on and learn from them. I am blessed to have been raised by parents that believe that um, it is okay to have brave conversations. Um, you know, we grew up in Connecticut. Um, we always joke around for some people like there are black people in Connecticut. <laughs> um, and, you know, although we, we grew up in a black community, we were bused to an affluent white school districts. Um, you know, we, I graduated from a high school with less than 10 people of color. And so we found ourselves very early being centered in a very Afrocentric and Caribbean centric family being bust and um, our parents being very clear that we had to show our authentic selves. And, um, and the way you show your authentic selves is allow there to be grace when someone says something that is offensive and being able to have what, as my mother would say, teachable moments. Um, I remember in sixth grade, we, myself and two um, of my closest friends there were three black girls in my sixth grade class and I'm not gonna I almost called man's name out <laughs> our teacher at the time we were doing a um a family tree and he pulled the three black girls out of the class to tell us we didn't have to do the family tree because he was you know assumed that we couldn't do a family tree as descendants of African and those who were brought here from slaves so of course all of our parents took it upon themselves to actually do the family trees for us <laughs> It was the best family tree ever. And for them, it's like, no, here's an opportunity for you to know the diversity of our families. But he did that because he thought he was being, didn't want us to be uncomfortable. It was, in fact, he didn't want his white students for him to be uncomfortable for if at the end of the day, we could only stand in front of that class and proudly say we were descendants of slaves, that that was the ability for in sixth grade to understand that being uncomfortable is the way that we have real conversations. And I think that is what we ought to be doing in this moment, to listen, as you said, but also to be able to be receptive to conversations and the grace for people to evolve um, around a race conversation. Dr. Bullard, what do you say to people who would like to be a white ally? That's a term that we've heard a lot about lately and how the complexion of the protest has changed. A lot of younger people, younger white millennials, for example. What do you say to someone who wants to be a white ally and isn't sure what language to use or how to go about it? Well, you know, the fact that coming out of the environmental justice movement and the civil rights movement, we don't ask uh, white people to check their white, their skin color at the door, but we do ask them to come with a lens that's a uh, racial justice and equity lens. 
the fact that uh, the, the, the meeting that we had at the University of Michigan uh, in 1990 was, uh, was pulled together by uh, Bunyan Bryant and Paul Mohai, an African-American and a white guy. And so the idea that we have ha always had allies, but the fact is that when we talk about the issues around justice, fairness, and equity, there's no one uh, group that will have a monopoly on that. And so how we build allies is to come to the table with uh, being authentic, coming there being, being uh, sincere, and coming to work. And I think this is true with young people today. And as I said, Every social movement has had successful movement that had young people and students. And young people, millennials, for, for example, today outnumber my generation, baby boomers. And then you start going below the millennials, younger than the millennials, you, you find this mobilization, this awareness. And because of iPhones and iPads and being able to, you know, the social media to get information, access to Google something real quick. The, the amount of information that young people have at their disposal in real time, they can um, truth, what you call it when you are testing a lie, uh, they can fact check instantly and, and really show, no, that's not true. Here are the facts. And so building allies, building that intergenerational uh, collaborative and, and understanding that when we are working together as a collective, we, we are unstoppable. And those of us who've been doing this a long time, if again, if we look at this race as a, not a sprint, but more of a marathon, and as a matter of fact, it's a race that doesn't really exist, a marathon relay. You run your 26.2 miles, and then you pass the baton off to the next generation to run it. Those, those young people that are out there marching, demonstrating, and protesting, and and showing their bravery during this time of coronavirus, during this time when they could know that they could get beat up, brutalized, or killed by police. That that kind of sheer bravery, but also standing for something. That's who we were in the 60s in terms of being fearless, in terms of dogs, fire hoses, going to jail, uh, threatened with your life. But to see those televised lynchings by police today, it's, it struck a nerve, and it's hit a nerve among a lot of people, not just black people, a lot of people. And I think this is that teachable moment that Glenn was talking about, that we have to use that teachable moment to teach. And people who are open to learning and changing, that to me, that's the optimism that I, uh, that I have for uh, what's going on right now. Mustafa Santiago Ali, you work with the National Wildlife Federation, which is sometimes called the hook and bullet crowd. You know, you think of uh, kind of a white man in plaid with a shotgun. You know, how are, how are you reaching out to those people to connect on environmental issues? And can you talk to them about environmental justice issues? Well, you know, we just had a, a vote at our board meeting and 97 percent of the board was in favor of the environmental justice movements uh, that we're going forward on. We are the only organization that has a full environmental justice analysis that's taking place for all of its policy programs, activities, and budgeting decisions. So those are important steps. But, you know, we also got progressives that are part of the base, the six million members, and you got the good old boys and good old girls who are part of it also. 
So what I do is I just keep it real with folks. That same pollution that is killing black and brown folks um, in the city is the same pollution that is impacting the national parks that you say that you care about so much. So you should be standing in solidarity with the folks who are dealing with the initial impacts because you're getting the secondary impacts. When we talk about water quality issues, we go through the impacts that are happening again in black and brown and indigenous communities. And that's the same pollution once again that is impacting if you're a fisherman. So there is those intersection points that exist. Um, you just have to make the decision if you want to stand in solidarity with those who've been doing the work for decades or not. Uh, and we're lucky that, uh, no, we're not lucky. There's work that has been done by folks long before I ever got there uh, to plant the seeds. Um, so, you know, we are continuing to water those uh, and, and move forward. You started on the first uh, environmental justice uh, program at the US EPA under uh, Administrator Bill Riley, under the first President Bush. And you left to, I think, protest the leadership of Scott Pruitt. What is the status of the environmental justice program now at EPA? So much has been devastated in that agency. Well, you know, the Office of Environmental Justice, which Dr. Bullard and others helped to get founded, which was the Office of Environmental Equity, you know, used to be a national program office. So just like the Office of Air, the Office of Water, so forth and so on. Now it's been moved over into the administrator's office about three levels down. And that sends a clear message. That sends a message that uh, environmental justice is no longer a priority at this institution, but it sends a broader message. It actually sends ripples across the federal family because that office also played a role with the interagency working group. So there are 17 federal agencies and departments that have a distinct responsibility for environmental justice. So when EPA does what it does, which of course is coming from the White House, then it also ripples to these other agencies saying that EJ is no longer a priority issue for us as it was to a degree in the last administration. So, you know, we have to make sure that we're getting these types of things in check, and especially in the broader context of not just the EPA, because these other agencies and departments have much deeper pockets and they have the ability to actually help to address many of these issues in a holistic fashion that are going on inside of our communities. Going to our lightning round, true or false, Dr. Robert Bullard, having a racist and violent police force in your neighborhood is a lot like having a coal-fired power plant in your neighborhood. True. That's uh, Bill McKibben for that one. Also, Dr. Bullard, really, it's Black people who should fear white people, given history. Very true. Mustafa Santiago Ali, what comes to mind when I say 1619? Slavery. Glenda Carr, would I mention Angela Davis? Powerful. Dr. Bullard, what comes to mind when I say Ida B. Wells? Fighter. Investigative journalist, educator, and early leader in the civil rights movement. Glenda Carr, what comes to mind when I say defund the police? Innovative. Dr. Bullard, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say Colin Kaepernick? One word, it's hard. Uh, hero. All right. Thank you for uh, getting through the lightning round here on Climate One. I'm going to end with uh, two questions from uh, YouTube, both Sharon and Susan ask, what gives you hope to continue to do this very critical work? And do you have hope that we will actually move forward to equality? Glinda, what gives you hope? Um, so I don't have children of my own, um, but my godchildren give me hope. It is about ensuring that we are, you know, leaving in America that is better than what we came from. Like I um, had the... Um, 
privilege of growing up with four generations in my family. My great-grandmother, who was born in 1895 and died shy of her 100th birthday, Carrie Lee Dickens. We all lived in the same community. And so she dreamt a dream bigger for me and my brothers that she could have ever imagined, right? That we could have ever imagined. Here's a woman that didn't have a right to own property, only had a third-rate education. But she knew that she could use her voice and her activism in a way that created a pathway better for me and my brothers. And I'll leave this with you because you brought her name up, Greg, which was Ida B. Wells. She once said, the way you write a wrong is to turn the light of truth on it. And I think that is what we continue to do and strive for. Mustafa, what gives you hope? Seeing so many different types of people coming together in in authentic ways uh, and seeing people not just utilize words, but actually being willing to put their bodies on the line uh, to make sure that justice becomes a reality that systemic racism ends. It reminds me of the pictures that I've seen because I wasn't there at the time of the early days of the environmental justice movement in Warren County, North Carolina, when people were literally willing to lay down in the roads to stop trucks from coming into their communities. That level of dedication is what is the fire underneath of a movement. And and I'm just blessed to be alive at this time and to be able to be a part uh, of change that is actually happening. Dr. Bullard, last word on hope. Well, what gives me hope is that uh, young people that are fearless and willing to commit and risk it all for the, the sake of justice and dismantling this violent system of racism. And I see that happening uh, right now. And uh, I, I think this is, this is the time to allow that that space and that leadership to transition and transform uh, this country. It's enough of them to do it and enough of us together to do it. You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about racism and the environment with Glinda Carr, president and CEO of Higher Heights for America, Mustafa Santiago Ali, vice president of environmental justice at the National Wildlife Federation, and Dr. Robert Bullard, Distinguished Professor of Urban Planning and Environmental Policy at Texas Southern University and recognized as the father of environmental justice. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>